I'm looking at your stamp, the hanko for your name, and so it looks like so it looks like it's Jing Guo something, right? Guo. Well, I don't know how to say your last name. Oh yeah, your that's Chinese right. Name. I can't. I don't one know which. Of I your, one of your fifty languages. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't. I can't. That's pretty good. I can't spot the other character. What is your Chinese? Well, name? you know, it's because it's kind of the old. It's kind of the ancient calligraphy, older calligraphy. So it's way as in Weifeng, like mm. bravery or valor. My father was, he was a nationalist. So it basically says my paternal name and then national valor. National valor. <laughs> <laughs> Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is it in a broken time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the 4-Hour Body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What's up, my little munchkins? This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I've been waiting to record this intro, and this goddamn garbage truck keeps backing up. So fuck it. We're going to roll with it and make that part of the ambiance. The Tim Ferriss Show is where I attempt to deconstruct world-class performers, whether they are chess prodigies, hedge fund managers, athletes, artists, comedians, celebrities, actors, you name it, scientists, 
we dig into everything. And the reason is you find that there are, say, morning routines, there are meditative practices, there are types of nutrition and training that transfer across all of these domains. It's pretty amazing that you find a common toolkit for excellence. And in this episode, we have Jimmy Chin. And I remember at one point, uh, Jimmy was kind of introduced to me conceptually by someone who said, if Chase Jarvis, the world-class photographer, and Laird Hamilton, arguably the biggest big wave surfer of all time, did I say biggest? The best big wave surfer of all time had a love child, it would be Jimmy. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? Well, Jimmy is an artist and a professional athlete, often at the same time. As a Nat Geo, National Geographic photographer, he has participated in and documented breakthrough expeditions around the planet, from climbing first ascents in the Karakoram to skiing first ascents in the Himalayas. Put another way, he is one of the few people to both climb Everest to the summit and then ski it down from the summit, which is bonkers. Most recently, he filmed and directed an incredible feature documentary called Meru, M-E-R-U, which is in theaters right now and won the 2015 Audience Award at Sundance. So what is Meru? I'll put this in perspective for folks. In the high-stakes game of big wall climbing, the shark's fin on Mount Meru is... I suppose the ultimate prize. Everest is a cakewalk by comparison. Sitting at the headwaters of the Ganges River in northern India, the shark's fin has seen more failed attempts by elite climbing teams. These are the best of the best over the past 30 years than any other ascent in the Himalayas, or the Himalayas, as they say. And this movie is a a story of one group's journey to conquer it, and uh, there are many mishaps along the way. And it's a a white-knuckle quest of friendship, sacrifice, hope, and obsession. How the hell Jimmy captured it on film while simultaneously risking his life is impossible for me to fathom, but we dig into it. So in this episode of the podcast, we talk about his origins, training, nutrition, gear, and tackling Meru, of course, uh, which just really blows my mind. And I don't say that lightly. So suffice to say, if you want a benevolent kick of the ass, go see Meru. That's your assignment. I saw it with my family and uh, for probably 15 minutes afterwards, all they could say was, whoa, Whoa, over and over again. My friend was, holy shit, under my breath, muttering, you know, 20 times every hour. Or it's, it's really mind boggling what Jimmy pulls off. It's amazing, terrifying, and, and awe inspiring and inspiring uh, at the same time. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the incredible Jimmy Chin. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's, it's really been an interview that uh, I've struggled with how to tackle because when I watched, is it Meru or Meru? I don't know how to emphasize the name of this. I say Meru. Meru. So yeah. it was basically 90 minutes of saying, oh my fucking God, oh my fucking God, oh my fucking God. So I feel like uh, most of the questions that I would have formulated during that time might have been hijacked. But we're going to, of course, talk about that and many other things. But when you are asked by people, what do you do? How do you answer that? Because you have been described by a friend of mine as as, uh, the the love child, if there were one, of Laird Hamilton and Chase Jarvis, which I thought was hilarious since uh, both both have been on the podcast, both amazing world-class performers in... Uh, surfing with Laird and many other things, and then photography with Chase. Uh, and I don't want the image in my head of them actually doing anything sexual, but h- how do you answer the question, what do you do? Because you do so much. 
Yeah. I, sorry, I was picturing something terrifying, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like Chase would would really get the worst end of that. <laughs> maybe. Um, you know, that's a question I get asked often, and it's you know, it's kind of amazing that I still don't have a very good answer for it. I generally break it down into three pieces. I'm a professional athlete. I am a photographer and I'm a filmmaker. And that's kind of divided by, you know, my sources of income. So I, I guess that's, that's the best way that I can describe what I do. Mm-hmm. And a, an athlete kind of entails everything from corporate speaking to, you know, endorsement of product or a, a brand ambassador or working on R D and D with designers on jackets, you know, so that they they kind of spread through a lot of different areas when I say athlete. And then photographer is both commercial and editorial work and filmmaker is kind of the same, you know, documentary filmmaking and and commercial work as well. Now for those people who may not be familiar with your work, what what would the the Jimmy Chin highlight reel look like when you're introduced by a friend at a party who's had a couple of drinks and so is very enthusiastic when they want to, when they want to really catch someone's attention with some of your accomplishments what are the things that they throw out i'd say oh wow i mean you mean flattering ones or unflattering ones? <laughs> <laughs> that's true they're like hey it's my friend jimmy what one of my buddies does as a side note he's from new zealand so he loves doing this to people but he'll run up to me at parties when i'm when i'm talking to someone i want to make a good first impression on and he'll go hey buddy how's the syphilis going anyway so, oh sorry to interrupt and it'll run off so uh, <laughs> yeah, i'm referring exactly. i'm referring less to that type of shenanigan and more to the flattering stuff when he wants to impress someone i i would say you know, I think it would be, hey, this is Jimmy. He's a National Geographic photographer. He's climbed and skied Everest. And he just recently, you know, won the audience award for his film at Sundance. That would probably be the, the, the quick and dirty. The quick, the quick and dirty top three. What is a first ascent and what is a first descent? In, in, in climbing and skiing, respectively, because you've done both. Is that right? Yes. I guess to give it some context, those are the descriptions of what professional climbers and skiers or snowboarders do. Because really, you know, when you're, when you're a professional climber or a professional skier, you are often trying to do firsts, things that have never been done before. And, you know, you make a career of of trying to do first ascents or first descents and 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 really that's kind of like your legacy too. So for instance if I show up in a mountain range in a Karakoram in Pakistan and I go to the Trango Towers which is this beautiful range of big alpine walls in in Pakistan I can look at the the mountain and or the mountains and I'll see these prominent lines, you know, and, and you'll either have a guidebook or you'll be with somebody that can point out these lines and say that prow on the great Trango first descent by, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, Mark Sinnott and Alex Lowe or, and so it's kind of like your legacy, but it's also your inspiration too, in a lot of ways. And then if you're a skier, you can go up to Alaska and 
you know, you'll see these big intimidating lines and they're related to somebody and they'll be like, Oh, Doug Coombs, you know, one of the great skiers of our generation that he did the first descent and they're important because they, you know, they represent a person's legacy in a way, but they also inspired somebody and so much of, and, and they had, they had to have a vision to do it because usually each generation you're trying to push the kind of boundaries of what's possible by doing these certain lines. And of course they get harder and harder, you know, generation after generation. Where, where am I reaching you right now? Where are you in the world? Uh, I just got back home in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And you have a, you have a very busy, (laughs) you have a very busy schedule ahead of you. But if, if you're looking back retrospectively at suppose that's redundant, but you get the idea at your three silos, and they're not really silos because they're so intertwined, uh, the, the photography, the athletics, and the climbing, and, and, and uh, alpine uh, sport, and then the filmmaking. If you could only be remembered for one of those three, which would you choose and why? Oh, boy. <laughs> that's a tough one. I, I don't even know if I can answer that because they're so important to me. There's crossovers within the communities, and I'm not trying to totally dodge the question. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, my peer group, I I think of my peer group when you ask me that question. And there are so many people who I respect and appreciate in each kind of category, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And they're all equally important and inspiring to me. So I, I don't know that I have... I guess that is the answer, is that there isn't one that I would prefer to be remembered by, or, 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 I'd, or I'd love to be remembered by all of them. <laughs> if you, well, let me, let me rephrase that. If you had to stop doing one of them, gun against the head, had to choose one, which would it be? Oh, you're making this tough. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's, there's a lot more where that came from. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there is. You know, I would probably choose, oh, man. I mean, climbing and skiing have provided so much inspiration for the other two. And the passion for the other two, in a lot of ways, were rooted in in being in the wild and the experiences that I had and have in the mountains and in the ocean surfing or, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty physical person and you know i i just find such great joy in doing those things so okay i guess i'll say the the climbing and the skiing the surfing the athletic side that's what i'd pick okay that's what you'd pick to keep that's what i'd pick to keep now let's talk about the physical side of things because i know the people listening are very interested in your training regimens and things like that and we're going to rewind the clock at one point and talk about your upbringing and background a bit but a mutual friend of ours sent me this paragraph and i'd love to dig into it a little bit his training regimen is alien example two-hour car-to-car ski laps on the Grand Teton, question mark, exclamation point, question mark. Uh, so I want to come back to that because I'm not sure what that is. He'd be in town having a coffee after a grand lap by mid-morning. Exum guides, I don't know what that is, but in Jackson Hole, list this as a two-day ascent, 
and many would consider it the seminal achievement of their mountaineering life. It's a standard workout for him. So I want to get to, I want to drill into this exactly. What is a two hour car to car ski lap? Um, I think the hours are probably wrong. I've <laughs> never done it in two hours car to car, and I don't think anybody has, but I have done certainly a sub 10, maybe, maybe even around six hours. I can't remember what the fastest time. I'm not one of those people that records my time every single time I go up and do something. Like I have a general sense and it's more just for me to gauge, you know, where my fitness is at. Um, But a car to car time, let's say it's six to eight hours, somewhere in there, is basically you start in the valley floor and if you did start at stopwatch, you'd start it when you left the car and then you'd climb up the grand and then you'd ski back down it back to the car and then you'd stop the clock. So car to car, you know, I think one of the times that has been kind of recognized was uh, I, when I was training to, to ski Everest, I was kind of doing laps on the grand. I would do it a few times a week. And at one point towards the end, when I was really fit, I climbed and skied the grand and then went over and climbed and skied the middle and then went over and climbed and skied the South Teton, you know, back to the car. And I think it was sub 10 hours. So I I can't remember exactly, but something like that. Um, And for me to think about it now, even I'm like, wow, that was, that's pretty fast. Cause I don't think I could do that right now, you know? Um, (laughs) And could I do it again at some point? Maybe, but yeah, that's how I trained because I, I didn't, you know, I do have to train in the gym now probably more than I ever had to before. Um, and I don't particularly love it because the whole point for me was that was being in the mountains and I didn't necessarily consider it just training because I got to be in the mountains and I got to climb and ski and breathe and, push myself and look at the starry sky early in the morning or watch the sunrise. You know, I mean, there's so much beauty in, in that. And when I'm in a gym, <laughs> it feels a little lacking, but I have to do it now more. Is now, is that a, uh, is that a function of age or what is the reason that you have to spend more time in the gym? I mean, some people who I've seen in their kind of arc in their kind of like career arc as a, as a professional alpinist or ski mountaineer, they've moved more into the gym because there's less exposure to risks. Right. And, you know, I mean, it is kind of a statistics game. The more time you're out there, the more risks you're exposed to, it catches up to you. So there is that part for me, that's not necessarily the case. It's more the fact that I'm traveling a ton. I'm married to, you know, my wonderful wife who lives in Manhattan. And uh, you just don't get those like full days where you're like, oh, you know, and, and, and to get in the mountains, you have to wait for the right conditions too. So if it's storming, you can't just go, you kind of have to wait. Um, and I don't have that luxury. It's like, okay, I have to train. I have to have a certain amount of consistency to stay shit in shape. What does your week of exercise 
look like currently and and let's let's separate that from kind of launch time with the new film and so on and just think about a a a non crunch period like that although i think you probably have a lot of crunch times <laughs> yeah. from, from the looks of it but what what is a, assuming that you're in wyoming what does a week of training look like for you and 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 the more specific the better cuz i i love it and i know the people listening would really enjoy it okay well it's hard for me not to think, and maybe this will be helpful too. Like I can think about what it used to look like in my mid to late twenties when I could just go. Um, and then also right now, but right now a week at home, you know, I'll usually set aside two full days. Um, if I'm home for seven days, so two of the seven days I'll set aside for full days and, one full day, depending on the season, you know, would be to go on, if it's a winter, it's a huge ski tour or, you know, climbing and skiing one of the peaks in the Tetons as like one of my big days. And then, or, or yeah, I guess in the winter, it'd be two of those. It'd be like ski something big in the Grand, Teton National Park, and then another big, you know, full day skiing backcountry at the resort or ski touring up on Teton Pass, which is this great backcountry ski area, ski accessed area. Uh, and then the five days in between, you know, I'd probably be working most of the day and I would just get like one or two laps up on the pass, which is like a f- approximately 1500 foot hike and then a ski down. And I would probably do that once or twice if I had a little bit more time in the afternoon probably throw in some yoga in there once or twice a week or just some stretching once or twice a week as well. And what type of gym work would you be doing in that week or would you not be doing much gym work? I probably wouldn't be doing much gym work. It seems like in the summertime, there's probably a chance I would do two days in the gym, which would probably be kind of core stuff. It'd probably be like core and, and, and yoga of some sort. And when you say core, to get really specific, how long are those workouts and what's, what might a hypothetical or real sequence of exercises look like for you? Probably if I'm lucky and I have somebody that I'm training with that will run me through some, uh, a workout, there's, you know, sandbag get-ups, which is... It's like a Turkish get-up using a sandbag or different? Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's like a Turkish get-up sandbags um, are you doing that with one arm it's just one of those uh, sandbags with kind of the handles on them yeah and you throw it over your shoulder and you basically uh, get up so to get up with down. a sandbag on your shoulder that sounds miserable yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> not that much fun <laughs> and, and how I many know. what type of kind of rep uh, set scheme are you doing with that it depends you know i think i'd probably be doing like 60 pound sandbag and I think it's like five to 10 on each side. And then I would go to do like a series of sit-ups or some sort of, you know, uh, leg lifts or something like that, where you're hanging off of something and doing leg lifts and then planks essentially kind of three core workouts back to back. And you do like a whole round of them. Got it. So you'd be, so you do sort of sandbag, get up, some type of leg lift, plank, and then repeat that sequence? Yeah. And in the winter, I might even, if there's like a climbing 
station where there's just like a, a wall there to hang off of, I'll do a core workout and then I'll just get on a wall for about four or five minutes at a time, overhanging wall and just kind of work out my arms just so I have some semblance of my, keep some semblance of my climbing capacity. And and really that's one of the hardest things for me because, you know, I, I'm supposed to be a climber and most of the climbers, like serious professional climbers, they just climb year round. And most of the skiers ski year round. So they go to South America and ski during our summers. But, you know, I'm kind of switching back and forth and they're, they're kind of, they don't complement each other that well because skiers get these huge legs and that's like the worst if you're a rock climber is like to have big meaty thighs (laughs) exactly and obviously really strong forearms and finger strength does nothing for your skiing so (laughs) (laughs) right that's like a constant kind of battle yeah it's like being a a bench press competitor and a competitive cyclist (laughs) yeah something like yeah, I, well, I mean, not to say you're doing much bench pressing, but the, the point being that the yeah the exercises do not necessarily transfer uh, from one to the other. When um, now you have, uh, and this is this is talked about in Mero, which I enjoyed incredibly. I mean, I, I recommended it to five hundred thousand people or so via <laughs> uh, this newsletter that I send out every Friday called Five Bullet Friday. I found it extremely inspiring, but I want to talk specifically about, it's not really a biathlon, it's kind of like a triathlon, but in an unconventional sense, in so much as, so Meru, I guess it's the sh- uh, the shark fin, am I getting this right? Yeah, the uh, shark's fin. The shark's fin requires, it's it's sort of, it's defeated some of the the top climbers and alpinists for 20, 30 years because you can't just be good at big wall climbing. And I guess for, for people, and please correct me if I'm wrong, this is just I'm trying to give people who aren't familiar with this stuff some context. Like big wall, you could think of, say, El Capitan or some of these sheer surfaces in Yosemite as a, as a big wall. You can't just be a, a good big wall climber. You can't just be a good ice climber. You can't just be good at any one of these disciplines. You have to be world-class at all of them. Um, and what I'd love to ask you is, for instance, in the case of rock climbing, uh, and when, when people think of, say, an indoor gym or just climbing outside, bouldering or doing top roping or whatever, or, or lead climbing if they're, if they're more advanced, what are some common novice wastes of time where they spend uh, or, or mistakes? And I'm just going to kind of hit each of these disciplines for people who are eager to practice this stuff. Right, so let's just if we look at rock climbing first and your own development and looking back and knowing all the people you know, what what should novices do more of and less of? I'd say in terms of technique, the classic mistake uh that climbers make when they first start is that they think it's all about having these big arms and upper body strength. And it's really actually about the footwork and balance and keeping your weight uh, over your feet. And so it's the classic scenario where you have like the big burly guy who's about to start climbing and then like the petite, you know, woman that, you know, is a little bit intimidating, intimidated and, and taking like, you know, just there's a 
different attitude towards it, you know, right. and then the guy gets up there and is trying to muscle through this climb and use like his big burly shoulders that he's been lifting, you know, building in the gym and he can't get 20 feet off the ground. And then, you know, the small petite woman who maybe did ballet or gymnastics gets up there and floats up the thing. And then the guy is totally destroyed, right? <laughs> <laughs> On multiple levels. Right. You see that all the time because the woman is, is a being smart <laughs> and she isn't leaning towards muscle. It's more about, you know, how she stands on her feet and, and is, you know, just being much more thoughtful about how to do, how to climb this thing. And so I don't know if that necessarily answers your question. No, it's helpful. I mean, I've, I've, I've watched women in the gym and they're, consistently, I mean, the higher level climbers better at keeping their arms straight and keeping their bodies over their feet, or at least using their feet to their advantage. What, uh, if you were training someone in rock climbing, how would you have them practice for the first, say, two weeks? Would it be on the bouldering wall? Would they be doing top roping? Would they be in incorporating other things like slacklining? I mean, if you really wanted to lay a very, very good foundation, what would you focus on in those first two weeks? I would probably get them on the bouldering wall uh, just to get familiar with, you know, moving around and not being so caught up in like the rope work and all of those things. And just getting that body movement, that muscle memory for kind of just moving around on a vertical surface. And then you know, then the top roping, would I would, t- you know, bring that in, t- getting them confident with tying the knots so that they understand the systems. Because so much of the fear that comes in climbing is often perceived. And, and a lot of, you know, what you do as a climber is you're managing fear. And, and I think that, you know, I often talk about managing fear by recognizing the difference between perceived risks and real risks. Mm-hmm. So when you teach somebody about these systems and they understand it and they're like, Oh, this is a safety system and this is how it works. You can help alleviate some of the fear of the climbing and that, you know, the, the height. So then I would just take them, you know, top roping and get them familiar with, with uh, climbing a bit higher and using that kind of technique that they've been learning on the bouldering wall as well. Let's talk about gear for a second, because I know people have asked me to ask you what type of, when you're in the gym or just uh, not doing uh, cold weather stuff, when you're just working on uh, climbing, what type of shoes do you wear? Uh, For normal rock climbing? Yeah. I guess it would just be climbing shoes. You know what brand? Yeah. 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 Uh, I normally climb in 510. They're known for having the best kind of sticky rubber. Any particular model? I've climbed a lot in the Anasazis for more like everyday climbing. And for backcountry skiing and ski touring, what type of gear do you use? I use Dinafit boots um, and the Dinafit bindings. And then skis over the last few years, usually on Armada skis or Black Diamond skis. When you're doing downhill I would imagine the gear changes quite a bit, <laughs> but I don't know. I'm not outside of my area of expertise. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I, I just, you know, I, I wear, I use a lot of different brands based on like what boot they have. So I've skied Lang boots and Armada skis 
for many years. That's kind of like my on resort kind of setup. And then that's the main. That's the go-to? Yeah. And and when you're doing this training and going, doing laps, right, of, of various types, and you're out there for five to 10 hours, are, are you, uh, what does your nutrition look like, if anything? I mean, what are you bringing with you in terms of water and food? On bigger days in the mountains, this is non-expedition, but let's say I'm going up to climb and ski the Grand, or I'm doing a long run across the Tetons or something in the summer. It's usually, you know, I have cliff shots, cliff blocks. I also use a lot of hammer nutrition stuff that I think triathletes and endurance athletes use. So there's uh, Heed, which is a great carbohydrate drink that, you know, isn't overflavored and, and pretty easy to use. And then I like to have real food as well. So it's usually like a ham sandwich or PB&J or a couple of them. I also take Endurolites, which is basically an electrolyte pill that Hammer Nutrition makes. I bring a lot of Lifesaver mints. <laughs> Lifesaver mints. Why Lifesavers? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> they're ni- they're like a little nicety to have when you're <laughs> on a long run or big day out. I have a terrible to- sweet tooth. So it kind of helps with that. As so well. do you bring lifesavers on your uh, bigger expeditions as well? Like on Mara, did you have a stash of lifesavers? Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I noticed, of course, and a lot of people have noticed that you have earbuds in a lot when you're climbing or I would imagine exercising. Well, let's just, uh, when you're on these these bigger expeditions, what are you listening to? And actually, uh, Justin Bereda of the Glitch Mob wanted to ask this specifically. He was—he's been, no way. yeah, he's been on the pod. He's been on the podcast before, and uh, so he wanted to know, like, what do you listen to? How do you use music when climbing, etc. So I'd love to just hear, you know, what what, what is in is your hilarious. ears? <laughs> well, a couple things. I don't usually climb like when I'm actually leading or if I'm belaying, I'm not listening to like a ear pod, but on expeditions, I definitely on the treks in, you know, where it's four or five days of trekking, I'll, I'll be listening to music. And yeah, certainly sometimes when I'm bouldering or, or touring, like up into the mountains to, to ski something, I'll have them in. But when I'm actually like, when it gets real, like there's real climbing or real skiing happening, I, I definitely am not listening to music at that point. Yeah. When you're trekking in, what's, uh, what are some favorites? It's funny that Beretta, who's amazing and I love the glitch mob. I mean, we definitely listen to the glitch mob on Meru and despite like the weight limitations that we put on ourselves, we brought this teeny little nano and a little micro speaker with like solar speaker and we had glitch mob on there. That's awesome. I've been a huge fan of them for a long time. And we had everything from, you know, classic reggae, Jose Gonzalez, Eddie Vedder, and the classics too, you know, like Led Zeppelin, Neil Young. Um, and then, I don't know, it's, it's, it's really across the board. I'll listen to Bach. Um, yeah, and these long trips, I usually have pretty good... A mix of music 
But Glitch Mob and Jose Gonzalez were definitely playing a lot on on our Meru expedition. When you look back at all of your experiences, and I'm sure you get approached by many, uh, wannabe sounds bad, but aspiring mountaineers, and I apologize that I'm, I'm not sure if mountaineer is interchangeable with alpine climber or alpinist. I, I don't know the vocab, but for people who look at your life outdoors and envy that and want to spend more time outside and want a goal of some type, let's just assume that they are uh, mid-30s, used to be pretty athletic, maybe competed as an athlete, spend a lot of time sitting down, but want to reverse that and need a goal of some type. What would be some some decent sort of goals to put in the calendar in terms of certain ascents or summits or anything like that? Just, let's assume that they're, they don't have any any real technical training to speak of at this point. Yeah, I think there's a couple avenues to come into it. I think Knowles is a good way to come into it. Uh, the National Outdoor Leadership School, based out of Lander, Wyoming, they have, I think they have a few adult classes. Another great way to come into it, of course, too, if you're a professional and and you want more one-on-one mm-hmm. kind of instruction, I think the best way to do that is to come into it by hiring a guide. And, you know, I think a great mini expedition for someone or a goal would be to climb the Grand Teton because you come into it, you learn the basics of rope work, you learn, you know, how to belay and you go climbing for a couple of days down low. So you're comfortable with the rock climbing and the systems. And then you get to go up on the Grand where it's a bit more alpine and higher altitude and and then you get to climb a mountain and you know a lot of people like a typical good client who's getting a lot out of the experience will will have that climb under their belt and then you know the next year they'll call their guide if if they got along with them really well and and had a good time uh and say hey let's do something else you know and that guide will probably come up with another really cool idea and maybe that's climbing some a harder route on the grand or go into the winds the wind river range or you know there's these ways to kind of continue to to progress as a climber but then you also have like the safety of this like very knowledgeable guide how do you how would one go about finding a good guide are there certain websites or resources that you'd recommend yeah i mean i think you can go in Jackson for climbing the Grand, there's two outfits. One is Exum Mountain Guides, and the other one is Jackson Hole Mountain Guides. And you know, all of their guides have gone through courses and definitely been in the mountains a lot. And so, you can they'll assign one. And you know, most of the guys I know are great, and so that's one way to to go into it. You can also do this kind of thing in Yosemite or in the Sierras as well, you know, and that's that's another place to go. Yeah, I saw a great documentary called Valley Uprising about the last, whatever it is, 50 years in Yosemite big wall climbing, and it kind of traces everything from the very early days all the way up to Alex Hunold, right? Is that how you say his last yeah. name? And, 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 and a number of mutants like that. The question that I wanted to tackle next is going way, way back. Where did you, where were you born and raised? So I was born and raised in Minnesota, Mankato, Minnesota, which is basically this small farm town 
with a small university in it. And had your parents been there? Had your parents been there for multiple generations? No, no. My parents were uh, both from China, and my mother was from Harbin in the north. I was just going to say they had to be from some cold ass place like Harbin to go to Minnesota. (laughs) Well, my mom was, you know, and she came from like this really progressive family. My my grandfather was like trained in Western medicine and a doctor. And my grandmother was like, she spoke multiple languages. She was pretty progressive for her time. She was apparently an actress in Japanese cinema. I don't know how that worked out. That's out there. That's yeah. And so she came from that, that kind of a world. And then my father was from the South in Windsor and he was from like a really traditional conservative military family. And it's very unlikely that those two would have met in China. But, you know, in that era, both of them left, both of their families left China during the communist revolution, ended up in Taiwan. And then they both went to the United States for university and met in the States. They apparently just, you know, they moved to Chicago after they got married didn't like the city and heard that Minnesota was apparently a good place to raise a family. So they moved to Minnesota and worked at the university in Mankato. And that's where I was born. Both of them worked at the university. Yes. What did they do there? They're both librarians. That's fascinating. And what, what were some defining moments in your childhood? Like when you think back to how you were raised and growing up in that environment, uh, what would you, if you had to pick a defining moment in your childhood, what would, uh, what would one be? Well, I grew up, you know, this is their, they were very kind of stereotypical Chinese parents. They were very focused on academics and kind of these extracurricular activities. So I started playing the violin when I was three and a half and, <laughs> you know, that, and Early. then I swam. Yes. I swam competitively from when I was like seven through high school. And then I studied martial arts from as long as I can remember from my dad. So my mom was kind of like pushing the violin side. My dad was pushing the martial arts side and they both kind of (laughs) agreed on the swimming part. But my life was consumed by these things because I was basically either practicing the violin, going to swim practice or going to the dojo, you know, and competing every weekend, played in the, you know, youth orchestra and, and I was studying a lot. And so I was pushed pretty hard, but I was also really motivated. You know, I wanted to do well in these things, but they were a bit confining in a way. And so when I found skiing, there's a little ski hill behind my house. That was my reward if I did well in everything else. And I still remember I skied in jeans and a jean jacket and froze my ass off <laughs> on this little bump. It's like the Andre Agassi of Asian kids in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I was like the only one, yeah. by the way, in Mankato, there were not that many Asian kids. <laughs> uh, how would you, now you have uh, your, own, your own small child now, am I right? Yes. What are you going to do differently, if anything, in raising uh, your child compared to your parents? And that's not meant as a criticism of your parents. I'm just curious what you'll, 
what you'll definitely borrow and what you think you'll do differently. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. You know, I really had to go against the grain. My parents were not into the fact that I finished college and decided I was going to go. I basically told my parents, I said, hey, look, I, I discovered climbing as well and in late in high school, and I was obsessed. And I told them, hey, I'm going to take a year off after college instead of looking for this, you know, this new career I was supposed to go on. Because, I mean, they, they really were, your three options are lawyer, doctor, executive, <laughs> you know. And right. <laughs> so when I told them that I was going to, like, live out of my car for a year, and I, the way I framed it was, like, I just got to get it out of my system, and then I will Happily. go pursue <laughs> a powered career somewhere. Well, one year turned into two, two turned into three. I lived out of the back of a little blue Subaru for seven years till I was 28, climbing and skiing and doing odd jobs, like shoveling roofs in, in mansions in Jackson. You know, we'd have to do rope work and like, yeah, I did random stuff to, to make it work. And so they were very... Well, they were mortified. <laughs> my, my mom would say, well, of course we're worried. There's no word in Chinese for what you do, you know? Like, how, <laughs> what are you doing? And I couldn't imagine a different life because I, I just, it was so powerful for me to, to do that. And it, it was tough. You know, I had a lot of doubt about it, um, but... And it didn't help, obviously, that, you know, every time I called them, they were like, what are you doing? You know, um, <laughs> but so what I took away from that, though, is that the foundation that they set for me in that sort of discipline. And even though it wasn't like I found the martial arts, I, I did eventually really love it. Swimming, it was just I did love that physical aspect of like competition too and just like pushing as hard as you can like improving incrementally and understanding what it takes to kind of progress i think playing the violin was incredibly you know i'm so thankful that it, you know i picked up the guitar in college it was really easy to pick up and music has been a big part of my life and so those aspects of my upbringing while at points in my youth I hated them, but there's so much appreciation for it. They also, you know, raised me to speak bilingual. They would ignore me if I didn't speak to them in Chinese because they knew I was going to learn English, but at home it was only Chinese. And, you know, so I, I got to grow up with another language. And when I was younger, I was like, my parents are crazy. Nobody else makes their kids do this stuff, but I really appreciated it. So I don't think I'll necessarily dictate you know, you have to do this and this and this. I'm certainly going to share the things that I love with my daughter, Marina. And if she, you know, enjoys them or becomes passionate, and that could be photography too, you know, I'm going to share those things with her. And I, I think I'll have the capacity to recognize whether or not she, you know, finds one of them really appealing. Mm -hmm. And 
in a lot of ways, it's also selfish because I want to be able to ski with my daughter and surf with my daughter. But I want her to find something that she's passionate about. And I've told myself this, and I don't know whether or not I'll be able to execute on it, but, you know, you know, to wrap my head around, like, it could be something totally different than what you expect. And you're going to have to embrace it and, and give her all those opportunities that she needs to, to pursue whatever that thing is. Um, and maybe it's knitting, who knows, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, it's, um, my, my mother and my mom and dad did that, um, with me quite a lot. I mean, they didn't have the, the same focus on music, although I took music lessons. I was a chronic quitter with music, but uh, did expose me to a lot. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, but was constantly exposed to things outside, to different types of activities, and then uh, they put whatever muscle they could behind helping me and my brother to explore those things. And I'm really grateful for that. And I had a number of mentors, uh, but this isn't about me. I want to ask you about your mentors. And I I only know about a few of them. Now, Conrad Anchor is in the film. And uh, if you're listening to this, you have to go see Marrow. It's time extremely well spent. And it's a a beautiful film and a terrifying film. (laughs) And at points, a, a hilarious film. But I wanted to talk about and ask you about someone I'm less familiar with. Uh, because we you, you, we've mentioned photography, but haven't really touched on your start, and I'm not familiar with it. So I was hoping you could maybe tell the story of meeting. Uh, is it Galen Rowell? Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, it's Galen Rowell. Rowell. There we go. And could, yeah. could you explain how you became exposed to photography, and then how you met uh, Galen? Well, I began. So I never studied photography. I didn't take any classes in photography. I actually had a friend who wanted to be a photographer show me how to use his camera and take a while we were on a climb in Yosemite, and I took a photo with it. and uh, And he was trying to sell his photos. It was slides at the time, and he sold it for sold one photo, and it happened to be mine for five hundred dollars. <laughs> and and he still says, I started Jimmy's career, which is true. Um, and uh, he went on to do great things in his field as well. But I, it was so funny because in a way I'm embarrassed to say it. Like I didn't come at photography from this inspiration of creativity and, and art. You know, I came at it from being like, oh, you know, I live out of the car, my car. I can live for basically two months, you know, (laughs) I'm like, man, I only have to take one photo a month and I can do this for the rest of my life. You know, um, that was like my 20 year old self thinking, obviously my, I've evolved from there, but, uh, you know, I, so I picked up photography then and I was very fortunate to start shooting right away, um, for commercial clients just because I was surrounded. My peer group were all these climbers like Dean Potter and Steph Davis and Timmy O'Neill and Cedar Wright. And they all became, you know, famous climbers. And and I started shooting for Patagonia and the North Face right away because they wanted someone they didn't have to worry about when they were up 
climbing and, and I could climb and I would shoot with them. But Galen uh, came into my life when I started looking at a lot of different photography and he embodied like this form of adventure photography that was very participatory where he was shooting from like the inside out as opposed to from the outside in. What do you mean by that? Where he's part of the team and, and climbing and he was a very talented and visionary climber. I mean, he has first ascents all over the world. Got it. Got it. And he was a peer with his subject matter. Exactly. And, you know, I related to that. And uh, at one point, you know, I saw these photos of Conrad and this other climber, Peter Croft in Pakistan, in this unbelievable valley. And I was like, okay, that is the end game. Like, if I'm going to commit to being a climber and I'm going to be in Yosemite, um, climbing El Cap wasn't the end game. That was like where you cut your teeth. You took what you learned in Yosemite and you go to a place like this place, you know, in this picture, um, the high altitude, big walls of Pakistan. And so I'm like 24, maybe, and 23, maybe. And I decide, okay, well, the one guy who's going to know how to get there is this guy, Galen. And so I drove from Wyoming to Berkeley where his, his gallery was. And I showed up at his Berkeley, office, California. Yeah. And I walk in the office, you know, and I'm like, the receptionist is there and she's like, can I help you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm here to see Galen. And she's like, and you are, and I'm like, well, I'm Jimmy Chin. <laughs> and she's like, uh, okay. Um, and she goes upstairs, she comes back and she's like, you know, he just came back from this huge shoot. Um, there's all these photo editors there. He doesn't have time to see you today. So I was like, well, that's cool. Do you mind if I hang out and look around a bit? She's like, that's fine. <laughs> So I sit in the lobby that day, the rest of the afternoon, kind of like moping around, looking at pictures, and the place closes, and I leave, and I come back the next day, and same thing. They're like, oh, it's you again. I'm like, yeah, is he around? And they're like, mm, not really. Uh, so basically, I do the same thing on Tuesday, do the same thing on Wednesday, do the same thing on Thursday. And by then they're kind of like, dude, what's your deal? And one of the guys there a little bit younger was like, man, what are you doing? And I'm like, I just want to meet, the, meet him. I have a, I just need 10 minutes of his time. And he was, you know, they're like, well, maybe come back tomorrow. So I show up on Friday, same thing. And at four o'clock on Friday afternoon, Galen comes down and he just looks at me and he's like, so you must be Jimmy. And I said, yep. And he was like, okay, well, you have my undivided attention for the next two hours. What can I help you with? And I was floored. Two all. hours. That's legit. Yeah. Wow. Well, that, and I was like, oh my God, it's Galen, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, so then I get up there and I'm like kind of embarrassed. And he, I was like, look, I want to go to this valley. And so he pulled down two slide trays and started showing me pictures. And I, I needed an objective. And because I was trying to write grant proposals and I didn't even know where I was going. And he was like, well, here you go. And he 
literally pulled the slide out of the tray and was like, this is your objective. And it was these two huge towers that had been unclimbed. And that's, that's not something you give up normally, you know, you mean, inf- if you mean, you mean information was, yeah, not, not, not something, you know, if you're a long time climber, you kind of keep those close to your chest. There's not right. that many of them out there, you know? Right. Um, so he gave those to me, he gave that slide to me, put me in contact, gave me the contact for his fixer on the ground there, Nazir Sabir, very influential, first Pakistani to climb Everest. Um, and then we walked around, he said the second hour, he, we walked around and he had to sign these prints. And we, I got to walk around these tables with his most iconic prints and he, got to, he told me the stories about the prints. And... I mean, I was floored. I was almost speechless at this point. And then he sent me out the door and said, good luck. And you know what? You got to promise me that you, you will take a camera. And that was sent. And I had just taken that photo that had sold as well. Um, and so I bought, a, you know, I bought a camera and put, my, put an expedition together to that valley. And that was the first expedition that I went on. And then fast forward I think it was four years, and I went on my first National Geographic expedition with Galen to Tibet and uh, got to watch him work, you know, day in and day out for two, two months. You know, I mean, it was hugely influential on multiple levels. What were some of the things that you learned from him, whether those are, you know, principles, techniques, sort of philosophies, sayings, anything? Probably the most important thing was just how hard he worked. I mean, he was always up before sunrise to, to make sure that he was in position to get the best light. And he, and he ran and he moved so much. And when you're on those kinds of experts, I mean, we were crossing the chain tank plateau unsupported, um, you know, average elevation, 17,000 feet. And when you say unsupported, what do you mean by that? Uh, there was no, we are carrying everything on our back. Okay, no, no Sherpas. Was, no, and there are no cars. No, yeah, no, no people to bring something to you if you needed it. I mean, we are in the one of the most remote, high deserts in the world, and those trips are all about efficiencies. You, you, you never do anything unnecessary because you know that you need every single ounce of energy to accomplish the goal. And yet, here he was running up to this you have to understand he's 62 when i went on this trip with him and i was 28 you know and he was climbing up these ridges up to the side and shooting back down to get this perspective and then going back down to his stuff and he'd be way behind and then he'd have to catch up you know and then he would get ahead and shoot shoot back and like just to see what it took um, and, and how committed he was and just how he lived through the lens. It just show you know, sometimes mentors don't have to say anything. Definitely. You know? It's just, you spend time with them and that is the greatest gift you can have. And, um, and sometimes it's just acknowledging that you're doing something right. It's not saying like you, you have to do it this way or that way. Sometimes you do, but you know what I've learned so much from my mentors is like, that was so meaningful to me is like, 
I'd take an initiative and they would kind of give you the nod, like you're doing the right thing. And that was a powerful lesson in terms of what it is to be a mentor, you know, cause that was so powerful for me to, to see that and say, Oh wow. Like I, I took a stab at something. I took a risk and they're acknowledging that it was a good risk and it gives you so much more ownership over it too. Sometimes, you know? So Conrad in the film, uh, does this a lot. I mean, he, he gives the nod to you quite a few times and I, I won't give away any, uh, any sort of punchlines uh, or key moments that I think people should just see in the film. But the there is one moment, and I'd, I'd love to, to dig into fear as it relates to this. So there's a moment, and I'm blanking on what it's called. Uh, oh, the House of Cards, is that it? Right. Holy shit. I mean, can you, <laughs> can you describe this to me? And then the question, is, you know, describe it for people, what this House of Cards is. And then... <laughs> When you feel fear, uh, if you do, I assume it's there, but uh, what, what is your internal dialogue? What, what do you say to yourself before you tackle something like that? So if you could explain the House of Cards to people and why it's called that. Yeah. I had to really like stop drinking my beverages in the theater because, <laughs> number one, it was cold by my like very limp-wristed standards in the theater, but I was also like my bladder was was uh, I was having sort of symp- symp- <laughs> sympathy fear just watching this. Uh, so what is yeah. the House of Cards? So the House of Cards is one of the pitches, which is, you know, essentially a rope length um, on a climb where I had to go up uh, through this section of rock, which were basically these delicately balanced giant granite slabs that, you know, probably each weighed 10,000 pounds a piece. And, and I had to move, climb through them without ever overweighting any portion of my body or else you'd peel one off and the whole thing would collapse like a house of cards. And as John so eloquently states in the film, it would floss the whole team off the mountain. Um, <laughs> and so it was fairly... We call it delicate climbing. Um, <laughs> that is such an. It's like the you win the understatement of my podcasting career award so far. Yeah, delicate climbing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so it was my lead, and you know, with so much of the climbing on expeditions like this, you have to really. Sometimes you just have to take a really deep breath and believe in yourself that you will make the right decisions and you're going to draw from all your experience. It has to be tempered because it can't be overconfidence. And there's this fierce concentration. Your world becomes so small in those moments. And in a way, also very expansive in the sense that you're so focused on the moment. So, so focused on the moment. And, and that's part of, I know, your listeners are probably going to think I'm completely insane, but I mean, that is part of the appeal of climbing is like nothing takes me out of thinking about my emails or, you know, all these random trivialities in life that we usually think are so important. You know, nothing takes me out of that more than, than, than climbing. And there's this kind of fierce concentration. And I, I was on that lead for six, I think it was actually eight hours, but you know, it, 
it happened when I finished it and I got to the anchor and I was ready to come back down. It felt probably more like 45 minutes, you know, and um, it just, you, you have to have that belief that, you know, you can do it and you, you really draw deep into your experiences. And I've been in those situations before too, where it was in a way you, you, you train yourself to function in very high stakes, high consequence situations. Um, and so you draw from that place. Yeah. I would imagine it's a process of sort of fear inoculation and exposing yourself to that in uh, sort of a progression of difficulty, right? Like you said, people take their experience on El Cap and then translate that into the bigger game, which is in Pakistan or wherever they might be. Talking about objectives, so you said I needed an, an objective right, in your conversation with Galen. Uh, so I sent a text uh, to your to your wife, uh, who's an old old friend, and uh, we were going back and forth about various things, catching up with life. And then I was talking about the film, and I put "Jimmy is a beast" uh, capital letters period. Good lord, a real man in a world of quote guys end quote refreshing to see. Now I'm not hitting on you. <laughs> Although it probably seems like I'm hitting on you. But I, I do think that there's a malaise among many males in, say, their 20s and 30s who are spending a lot of time sitting down in front of computer screens. And um, they just don't feel as sort of manually literate or physically capable as their forefathers. And I, I do think that causes a lot of problems. Um, uh, so what would, what, what, uh, speaking of some objectives, right? What are some skills or uh, that you think every man should have or things that every man should have done? Well, first of all, I, I, first I'd like to probably address the fact that I personally feel doubt and inadequacies all the time. I think people this, you know, after being on tour with this film, people are like, wow, you know, you must not feel fear. You must not have any doubt. And, and I don't necessarily want to project that image because, you know, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm fearful all the time. And, you know, among my peer group, I'm always like, oh my God, I'm such a, a wimp. You know, these guys, this guy's doing this and this guy's doing that. And I'm like, gosh, I don't know if I could do that, you know? And, and I just want to put it out there that that's okay and that's normal and that's, and I'm okay with that. Um, but in terms of skills, like, I mean, if you're out there and, you know, I can't speak to all the different things out there. I mean, no, but let's, that I don't know. No, no, but let's just say you've had, yeah. let's, let's pretend because no one's listening. It's just the two of us. We've had three glasses of wine each. Yeah. And then I ask you this question. <laughs> okay. So that's a good way to put it. Well, if you don't do this, then you're a total candy ass. Right. Um, exactly. so, um, well, there's some skills I wish I had, you know, okay. uh, that I think would be good. But mountain climbing is a great objective because there's so much around it. There's like the organization, there's like the vision, there's like the camaraderie when you get your friend to go up there with you. There's learning, 
um, technical skills. There's opportunities to learn about yourself and push yourself. Um, it's physical. Um, it's cerebral. Uh, so, you know, that might be unfair coming from a mountain climber, but that, I think mountain climbing can do a lot for you. And, and you get to be in, outside in, in these beautiful landscapes, which is a huge part of the inspiration for me. I'd say writing well has been extremely important. Not that I'm a great writer, but I think it's an incredible skill set that you need in whatever aspect of life you have. What has helped you improve your writing the most, whether lessons or teachers or books or practices or anything? For me, it was probably early on was reading a lot and then finding, you know, favorite writers and examining why I liked the writing. And I know it's so cliche, but I mean, I freaking, I loved Hemingway, you know? Hemingway's great. Yeah. And in the same, in the same way, that's, that's really how I developed my photography. I didn't have anybody teaching me it, but I, I looked at a ton of photography and I started to break down why I liked certain photographers. And then, you know, there are certain photographers that helped shaped, you know, how I looked at my shooting. So, you know, it's, it's like studying other, other, other great people in the field um, has always been a great way for me to learn. Who are some of your other favorite authors? Oh man, that there's, (laughs) I'll throw out one just to, just to buy you some time. I don't know if you've ever read Coming, I think it's Coming into the Country by John McPhee, uh, M-C-P-H-E-E, about his his travels in Alaska. I think it won the Pulitzer, but uh, just incredible writing as it relates to uh, his outdoor expeditions. Yeah, no, I've definitely read McPhee. I, Jonathan Franzen recently, you know, John Krakauer is a friend of mine, but I've always been like amazed at like how he approaches his work. Did I say John Krakauer or did I just say John? No, you said you should you should, you should Krakauer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let me think. Who else have I read recently? I think I ju- I just finished John Krakauer's book um, Missoula, and I was just really impressed with how he basically, in a way, changed how he wrote to address the subject in the in the most powerful way that he could, and being able to morph that way is is really. Um, was really impressive to me. When you, uh, I mean, you guys obviously know one another. You've met a lot of successful people. But when when you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why? You know, who I've really been just endlessly impressed with is Yvonne Chouinard. Patagonia, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, he's known for founding Patagonia, but it's it's like he he's he's like hacked the system somehow. You know, I mean, he's known for for founding Patagonia, but he also is. I mean, he's really you know he started one percent for the planet, and he started you know Patagonia Land Trust, and he found a way to you know have a successful commercial endeavor understanding that there's necessary evils that people are still going to buy stuff you still have to make clothing because people have to wear clothing but yet you know his approach is like we're going to make things that are best thing possible and we're going to do it as ecologically 
sustainable as we can, you know. And he's also led this incredible life of adventure and you know he's inspired me in so many different levels and and I've been really fortunate to have spent some time with him he's a he's a sharp guy he's a sharp dude and his uh I remember his book uh let my people go surfing I think is the name of it yeah uh, had a really big impact on me when I first read it so I want to say about 10 years ago it's actually I keep it in my closet sort of uh so that I see it Every morning when I get dressed, it's sort of on the t- uh, on the top shelf next to a few other books. What is the book that you've given most as a gift? There's probably two. One is Musashi. Oh, fantastic! Yep, loved that book. And the other one is probably the this book called The Guide to the I Ching by Carol Anthony, which was given to me as a freshman by one of my comparative religion teachers and. I've pretty much traveled with that thing since. I've had a copy with me somewhere. And it's just an interesting take on, an interesting perspective. Yeah, the I Ching is, uh, I Ching, it's, I mean, it's like a Rorschach test in a way, right? Or a mirror or both. Yeah. It's, um, yes. I took an entire class in college on the I Ching and the interpretation and use of the I Ching in the historical context. Very, yeah. very fascinating. Um, and I, I kind of put it aside for a very long time, and now it's very timely that you bring it up. I should I should go order this, because I'm, I'm getting back into examining sort of how to draw value out of that. The, and the author is Carol Anthony. Yeah, and it's funny, because I don't consult that you call it consulting the I Ching very often these days I almost carry it because I and I if I see it I've, I've looked at it so often so many times over the years that like this is I, I just look at it and I'm like okay I kind of know what the answer is <laughs> for this <laughs> dilemma I'm having you know <laughs> that's awesome that's super cool yeah I'd love to talk about your morning rituals. So on, on your ideal morning, what is the first, you know, like 60 to 90 minutes of your day look like? When do you wake up? What are your morning, what morning rituals are important to you, et cetera? Besides getting up and looking at my Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, did I say that out loud? Can you erase that? Uh, just what, kidding. What, what, um, what time do you wake up? I usually wake up around seven, mm-hmm. um, seven, eight, eight thirty. If I've kind of gone out late and, or stayed up late, I, I work late and it's a terrible habit. Like I, I'm usually hammering emails until I fall asleep, which is awful. Um, I've been trying to train myself to, to just read, um, which works every so often, but in the morning, in an ideal morning, I would get up and, the first thing, you know, one of the first things I would do would be to sit down and try to meditate, um, and, and maintain that practice. Uh, I'm not great, but it's always been beneficial when I've had some consistency in doing it. What type of meditation? 20 minutes. Okay. Sounds like um, transcendental meditation or no? Yeah. Kind of a form of it. And, you know, I've, I've kind of looked at and played with, different forms of meditation, but that, that one, that, that form is, uh, kind of the type that I've been doing lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I reach, I, I usually it's, 
I don't even want to say that it is TM because it's more, it's like a conglomeration of different things that I've learned and, and thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, it's breakfast, which is usually toast and jam or, or granola and bananas and yogurt, something like that, or a smoothie. And uh, then I just open up my laptop. It's so boring. And I start <laughs> looking at emails and trying to be and saying to myself, oh my gosh, I got to like hammer these out. Because what I'm trying to do is get as much done as I possibly can in the first few hours of the morning because my head is clear so that I can go run outside and do something in the afternoon. Got it. So is, is the morning then, that is when you're mentally sharpest and you want to then... Definitely. Just knock stuff out before lunch so that you can get outside and run around yeah. and do what, whatever activity yeah. you partake in. Uh, yeah. Do you, uh, do you drink? No, not very much. Not very much. Mainly because I'm Asian and I get a headache and fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys, you guys but, are not, not great at processing ethanol, you guys. But uh... No, no. But I do, I do, I have been known to drink and yes, it's not uncommon for me to have a few drinks. If you walk into a bar, what would you order? I usually order a beer and nurse it for a long time. Tequila is probably where I go if I'm I'm going out to have a pretty good time. Right. Yeah. Tequila. Yeah. There's some there's some good stuff out there. The Casamigos, the, the Casa Dragones. There's uh, I was never a tequila fan because it turned me into a complete lunatic, uh, <laughs> and that only changed when I stopped mixing it with other things. So unless yeah. unless we count club soda, club soda is a fair mixer. But if I combine tequila with anything else, it's just a recipe for disaster in my experience. <laughs> yes. Good tequila though. Yeah. <laughs> what $100 or less purchase has most positively impacted your life in the last say 6 to 12 months? Yeah, I mean, a classic thing I always buy is one of the like niceties that I might get is this lip balm, blackjack lip balm. Blackjack. And, yep. Or no, it's uh it's actually called Jack Black. Oh. <laughs> Jack Black slip bomb. Got it. And I've taken it on every expedition I've ever been on and um it's twenty five SPF and it's like one of the few things that keeps your lips from cracking on like a really be- tough expedition. So <laughs> that's always nice to have. Yeah, that's simple. Jack Black lip balm. I'll uh I may be uh I I probably not doing anything strenuous enough to warrant uh, lip balm, but I, that that is probably an indication that I should get out and move my ass around in more strenuous <laughs> environments. Uh, <laughs> if you could have one billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it what would it say? Uh, that is a toughie. Or I'll give you another one you can choose from. Well, it's uh, funny because I the two things that came into my mind like immediately was one was like chill, right. <laughs> or the other one was get after it. Oh <laughs> yeah. Diametrically opposed. <laughs> I can I can see the conflict. Uh, yes. Well, maybe you put them in different places. Yes, maybe. And 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 I I think that's probably yeah that's kind of representative of the way I function. I tell people I'm the, the laziest 
motivated person that I know because I'm either <laughs> just, you know, want to just completely kick it back or else I'm going 150 miles an hour. Right. Trying to hit a first ascent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Involving the house of cards and other things. <laughs> uh, what advice would you give to your 30 year old self? I would probably say think of the long game because you freak your out. You're, I freaked myself out so much being like, Oh my God, you know, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do this. And you know, I've always lived my life with a sense of urgency and sometimes that works out in your favor. Sometimes you botch it and make bad, you know, quick decisions. And as I've gotten older, I've recognized that life just has its ups and downs. I mean, the classic, you know, Buddhist saying would be, you know, the middle path, you know, you, you don't get super excited and overconfident when something really great happens for you. And you don't get completely depressed if something bad happens for you. And you just have to understand that, you know, life goes in these crazy waves and you just hold steady and put one foot in front of the other. I love it. And putting one foot in front of the other uh, is, uh, <laughs> that, could, that could be the, the subtitle of your latest film also. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Could you uh, yes. could you please let everybody know where they can find the film, uh, where they can find uh, more information online, and then where they can find you online? And of course, I will link to all of this uh, in the show notes. But uh, what? Uh, where can they learn more about Meru and more about you? So I think the best place to look is merufilm.com. So M-E-R-U film.com. And that has a little list of all the theaters uh, and, and other information about the film. And then our handle on social media for Instagram, uh, Twitter, and Facebook are all also Meru Film or at Meru Film. And we're releasing online in November on iTunes. So look for us there. And then for myself, it's just JimmyChin.com. As we all know, documentaries kind of live and die by word of mouth. And uh, hopefully people have an opportunity to see it. And if they like it, please share share the stoke. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, you guys have to check it out. Meru is spectacular. Uh, we will chat maybe another time about how the hell you guys actually captured footage in uh, a lot of these situations. I think that's an entire, <laughs> sure. co- entire conversation in and of itself. But uh, folks, check it out. It's very well worth the time. You know I love docs, and this is the best one I've seen in a very, very long time. So check it out if you want to be inspired, terrified, pee your pants just a little bit, which is always, (laughs) it's good every once in a while. It's healthy for your bladder and urethra. You should check it out. So uh, Jimmy, I really appreciate the time, man. And uh, you've inspired me to get my get my pale, lazy ass outside uh, in, in much greater volume in the coming year. So for that, I thank you. And um, thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Keep up the great work and I will, uh, I will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks.
Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out, just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.